Today, I was about to go before you and all of the internet in engaged debate with the other poll on the epistemic framework, that is to say, the theory of knowledge behind Sola Scriptura. The other poll dropped out of our debate, and therefore, I'm, I'm going to present what I would have presented to him to you now, so you don't have to wait for it. We were supposed to meet in a battle royale, if you will, on Trent Horn's channel, and I'll, I'll still hopefully debate someone in the coming months. I'm not sure why it will take so long, but Trent's done good work in, in corralling everyone into debate. I'm always willing to go. It will probably be October before some suitable replacement with this, the same topic is available. So I, we're, we're talking about um, mid-October. I'm going to explain to you why it's hard to secure the debate on Sola Scriptura with Protestants today. So stay tuned. I'm going to also, like I said before, present what I had for you. And a, a lot of people were asking about it. They said, hey, this, this short two-minute, 15-second video that I dropped yesterday on Twitter was really, really helpful. They'd never seen anything like this. And I'm like, look, remember, Protestantism is arch-heresy. Okay, so when we debate Protestants, we don't want to do so as if there's a, a chance they might win the debate. And when you debate an Arianist, if, if, you, if you were to do so, though that's not, a, that's not a popular pastime, you don't want to debate an Arianist as if there's a chance the Arianist might win. This is just an outmoded um, um, modality. And thank goodness, no one really takes it seriously anymore. This was not the case 200, 300, even 400 years after Arius lived. There were still folks that, that talked about it like it was a live wire debate, like the Catholics could still, a few centuries later, fumble the ball. My general approach to talking about Sola Scriptura, the most binding force in the Protestant Reformation, you call it the Protestant Revolt, is sola scriptura. And um, I'm saying, what I've suggested is that sometimes when we talk about, when we do apologetics as Catholics with Protestants, it's too often done, because it's within, you know, it's about five centuries later, it's too often done as if it's a live wire issue, like debating an Arianist in, you know, 600 or something like that. It's, it's, it's a dead issue. This short video, which I'm going to, exegete, it's my own video, um, provides you with really simple modal tools. You don't have to get into passages of Scripture interiorly to prove that Scripture is exteriorly inerrant. That, that can't be done, and I'll show you what the name of the game is. This is what I was going to do with the other Paul. I, I once again want to thank Trent. I want to thank Paul uh, for, for, you know, giving his best shot, some, some drama broke out yesterday on Twitter, and this is all I'm going to say about it. The other Paul, who postponed or, or canceled twice, depending on how you characterize that, and, and moved this debate back from uh, July to August, I'd say needlessly, he says, look, I, I dropped out this second time indefinitely for personal reasons. 
And all I said yesterday on Twitter that seemed to cause some drama was, well, everything's a personal reason, technically speaking, because your person is your, you know, your, your, uh, a rational animal, you know, with this composite nature of matter and form. That's what a person um, is in our case, a corporeal, rational animal. Anything that happens to your soul or your body, anything to your person that made you either directly or indirectly want to drop out of the debate is a personal reason. But generally speaking, what doesn't qualify as a personal reason for dropping out of a debate would be insufficient preparation. I was insufficiently prepared. I need to make a special study of epistemology before I go through with this debate. Especially when it was rescheduled already once. Right. (laughs) Which was the reason that Paul gave in his August 17th email to both me and Trent. I I need to study this stuff more. And I'm too busy personally to do it. And I didn't want to be personally embarrassed, I think is the subtext. So, yes, anything's technically a personal reason. However, personal reason in the the sense it's usually given by way of begging out usually means I got the vomit flu, the diarrhea flu, someone in my immediate family is in ICU. There's a hurricane currently blowing through my house, Right. That would also qualify. But short of those four reasons, hurricane blowing through actual house, diarrhea, vomiting, loved one in ICU, personal, even though technically it's correct, he personally didn't want to be embarrassed for lack of preparation, which he admitted. I can produce that August 17th email. Um, it's, it's a bit of a stretcher, as Huck Finn says. So I'm going to walk you through, as I already promised, um, the reasoning that I think scared off the other Paul, okay? And it's, it's a priori reasoning. And this is kind of close to the heart of why I think Trent invited me on is because I'm always like, look, don't get into these issues so much as if it's a matter of exegesis. Um, this, is, this is an easily provable a priori uh, fallacy. As a matter of fact, it ends up being a, a violation of the principle of proportionate cause really quickly. And I'll show that to you in today's video. I'll slow it down a little bit, but you can prove it in about two minutes and 15 seconds, which I did. I released this on Twitter. And uh, so it, it ends up being sort of close to the bone in terms of trying to have me on because I said, hey, we, we shouldn't do this normie, super polite form of debate. I, I didn't necessarily mean him. Um, but we're we're kind of we're kind of running that through the ringer uh, by example, right? By by performed uh, phenomenon with what happened with this debate. Because I'm like, look, I, I debate a priori. I debate epistemology. Epistemology is the theory of knowledge. How do we know that scripture is inerrant? We agree with Protestants. It is. How do we know? And therefore, we're not going to be throwing Bible verses at each other. And once I said that, and I said, look, I, I like to go through, when I'm preparing for a debate, I like to um, modally prove what I'm saying to myself. I like to go through a symbolic logic and just have an outline. I like to, at the very least, if I don't use symbolic logic in preparation, flow chart it out. So I can just be like, here's the track. If we get off this track, then you're going to be able to BS. That's the problem. People that listen to these debates a lot of times don't know exactly, but by most people's admission, they don't know exactly what they're listening for. So like Royce White said on my podcast on Friday, 
a lot of times through the audience's own admission, like, look, we're non-expert in this. If you get a real slick sophist on the other side who's, who's defending Arianism or Protestantism or Sola Scriptura, which is a violation of the principle of proportionate causation, they can make it sound quite palatable. And I just say, no, with epistemology, the ground floor. If I insist on the ground floor in ways that maybe is considered novel to today's apologetics, no, a couple things. One, it's the proper way to debate. Number two, it's not novel at all. This is what you know, the Aristotelian tradition is wrought of. And um, three, it's very, very intimidating. So uh, you'll end up seeing it in action, hopefully. And it'll be, hopefully, on the Council of Trent Trends podcast. But, um, you know, no guarantees. We got to find someone that's willing to go through with the debate. And that, that's difficult. Part of it's this thin, thick Sola Scriptura thing. But, oh, so I, that's what today's show is going to be on. Now, pretty please. Support me and this channel. You can support me by clicking donate on timothyjgordon.com. I need your help. This is the most unique set of culture and politics and church ecclesiology out there on the internet. Go to timothyjgordon.com and click donate. That's if you want to donate to me, the man, the guy that's canceled from everywhere, live job, fake job, online job, Patreon, whatever. Um, it's very helpful, and you can give just a small recurring monthly donation. That's awesome. That's a donation. If you want to crowdfund this show, help us to keep the lights on at the show, do it through Locals or Subscribestar. Remember, I got kicked off Patreon, Locals or Subscribestar. The other way, indirectly, you can support the channel is by buying any one of the five books associated with it, Case for Patriarchy, Ask Your Husband, Catholic Republic, the self-titled uh, rules for retrogrades, or of course, don't go to college. Those five books conduce to four pillars of this show. Of course, Steph and I doubled up on Ask Your Husband in Case for Patriarchy. That's what we've returned to talking about a lot the last three months this summer after spending the previous year sort of boosting the new book, Don't Go to College, and some other uh, topical current events issues of the, of the year. We've had a lot. Finally, Help yourself by going to realestateforlife.org. Get out of your blue state. Get to a red state today. It's the most important thing as certain lock-up regulations might be ramping up this fall. There are indications all over social media that they might be ramping this L-O-C-K-U-P right back up. The most important thing for you in that set of circumstances, which is likely, is to be in a red state. Go to realestateforlife.org. couple quick things. Well, again, big thanks to Trent for trying to run down this debate. I, I do appreciate it, and it's, it's not easy to do. There was some talk of getting Trent on my channel to debate Harry Potter. So any takers to debate Harry Potter, I'd love to do that one because you know what? I think Trent has the it's 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 kind of a silly topic, but it it's a big cultural issue, so it's it's worth talking about. And I think Trent has the best video out there on it responding to uh a, a video by none other than Father Chad on Harry Potter. And I think Trent 
really carries the day. So anyone who's, you know, got experience at debating Harry Potter, what? Um, if you'd like to debate Trent on it, it's probably a trad. Then, then um, let me know. I'm not. I'm not certain. Trent hasn't guaranteed he'd do it, but um, Jesse Romero. I think some of the f- good folks at Church Militant were trying to secure this debate, and I, it makes a lot of sense to do because there's a lot of confusion about this, this particular topic. As silly as it is, very serious. Very silly. Very serious topic. Wizard. The Wizarding World of Harry Potter. And we're we're going. To visit uh, Universal Studios soon, so tr- Trent, I need to know: can I, can I go into the Wizarding World of Harry Potter? No, I mean, I, I, I think, I think Trent makes some really convincing arguments. Also, just because I'm talking Trent Horn today, since I was supposed to be on his channel tonight, either recorded or live, I forget the exact dates. Tonight, I think it was recorded was supposed to be the drop date of my debate with the other Paul. I'm just talking all things Trent Horn. He released a video today um, that I think is very interesting, and I just saw some some tweet tweeterage on it. One, going after, not going after, that's such a bad term, addressing Kennedy Hall for his young earth creationism and addressing Taylor Marshall's, uh, I, I guess, I guess, uh, endorsement, of the idea that we didn't go to the moon. When I was with Taylor, he never he never wanted to do videos on that. I, I love this kind of stuff, right? I'm friends with, quite frankly, Jay Dyer. I've always loved the conspiracy theories. This is up my alley. This is new to me. When it, when I heard Taylor's getting on board this train, I, I'm surprised because he, he hated this type of topic when we were making videos together. It was always very straightforward. But um, I will say this, in defense of Trent, with regard to Kennedy Hall. Uh, young Earth creationism is a, largely an evangelical trend that I think has got to go. It's got to go. I just think it's got to go. It's not Catholic. Um, it, now, that doesn't mean you can't hold it as a Catholic. It's just, culturally speaking, it's part of the culture of evangelism, Protestantism. Remember, uh, I think Gavin Ortland pointed this out. If there was strictly young earth literalist creationism, we would not have the second greatest doctor of the church ever returning, Augustine. He thought Genesis 2, 2, 3, but especially 2, taken literally was silly. Look, there there are these two two creation stories with different chronologies, if you don't know. And he was like, this is simple. Christians, Christians are silly. And this is Trent's wider point. This is silly. If Christians can't see that if I say... In one account, ABC happened in that exact sequence, and in another account, ACB happened. That there's some contradiction, and one of them has to be false. If we hold them in literal correlation, then then Christians are very silly. This was Augustine's young position. It was him hearing the lectures of Ambrose, St. Ambrose, on the anagogical truth, the anagogical truth of both creation stories, Adam and Eve in seven days. This is very simple, though. I mean, I, I, once again, I'm, I'm a philosopher. You're going to hear my approach to sola scriptura. It's pure a priori epistemology. And um, Augustine, like Gab, Gavin Orton also points out, creation to Augustine was like what justification was to Luther. 
Augustine would never have come back if not for seeing that there are other church fathers. His kind of father of a church father, St. Ambrose, who was like, this is anagogical, right? Different from analogical, but it's, it's you know, Adam and Eve are historical persons, but that doesn't mean that uh, the two creation stories are both literally true in the same time at the same way, because that, that would be an impossibility. So that's not modernism. I'm just saying Augustine, Ambrose, many of the church uh, fathers all had very, very, very much more wide than mere historical accounts of what would today be called young earth creationism. The resurgence was 70s, 80s, 90s evangelism in the Protestant churches. And somehow with trads, it got out of fashion to just be like, um, I don't. I don't know. Uh, Humani, uh, uh, Humanum Generis says that this is an open question. We can go with the science. I'm very compelled by the cosmic microwave uh, uh, radiation, uh, CMBR, cosmic microwave background radiation, which Robert Syngenis has done great work in popularizing, which is like, yeah, don't, don't get caught up on the age of the earth don't get caught up on whether or not Earth is the center of the solar system. It doesn't appear to be. But at the very least, our solar system is provable mathematically as the center of the universe. Even Lawrence Krauss uh, has not been able to disprove this. He just has to hold that it's a coincidence. So there, not all of these issues, trads out there, parish orphans, retrogrades, go together. To hold one, you don't have to hold the other. To be a trad, you definitely don't have to be a young Earth creationist. To be someone that, that believes uh, humanum generis uh, leaves sort of both positions open. It doesn't mean that you have to uh, repudiate even geocentrism, but it's a solar, sister ge a solar system geocentrism. I'm just trying to show you that all these issues don't do go together. And to prove it to you, I will defend... Um, Against Trent, I agreed with Trent and what he's saying against Kennedy. I, I have zero problems with Kennedy um, at all. Uh, just I, I think I think Trent's raising a valuable point. To be serious Catholic, and I have a lot of background. Much of my philosophy graduate degrees is science and philosophy. You, you know, you do not have to be a young Earth creationism, and that's probably an understatement. If you learn anything about the work Einstein was publishing in the 1920s against which his one-time student, uh, Monsignor Lemaitre, reacted with the Big Bang Theory, which is not actually related to, as Trent points out, <laughs> uh, evolution. This is the generation of the universe, the creation. The two totally separate issues. Uh, people unschooled in these two topics often mix them up, including Dawkins. Dawkins Richard Dawkins will often mix them up. Evolution's the origin of life. We're talking about the origin of the universe when we're talking about Big Bang Theory. But you should know, Einstein was saying in the 1920s he could prove the eternality of the universe and that this would smite down theism forever, which is generally speaking the, the atomistic view of the world uh, even before Plato and Aristotle's day, that if you can prove it's eternal, you can, you can smite down theism forever. Um, and, and so Lemaitre reacted against that, and Einstein was kind of devastated. And everyone in the 20s, 30s, 40s, after Big Bang, 
29, whatever it was, 1929, just was saying, oh, I guess this is a big win for theism. So um, to hold Big Bang is connected to evolution is completely confused. They're two totally separate theses. And then to hold that it was a win for the atheists when it was condemned in Soviet Russia, in China, and somewhere else in the Soviet bloc countries, they condemned it as itself a repudiation of state atheism. It's very confused. But I'm not with Trent on necessarily uh, the idea that the, the, the moon landing uh, skepticism is silly, not, not by a long shot. Anytime you have the creation of the CIA in 1947, which said precisely that its goal was to confuse a, a, Americans about such issues by the creation of the psychological operation, they said Americans should not know the real from the fake. Sometimes they'll be affirming fake things. Sometimes they'll be doubting real things, particularly as it was tied into the concepts of the Cold War. I, I don't think this is a, a silly issue, particularly after... 2019 2020 to be exercising extreme caution about there there's some real re, i mean i think i think trent should um have a look at some of jay dyer's work on the deep infiltration of cia not only into psychological operations in america but also into the church operation gladio it, it's really worth looking into um having a, a cia in 1947, made this a fundamentally different country than it was. Anyway, that's a tangent. All right, let's get that video up. Let's talk Sola Scriptura. Let's, let's talk whether or not this is a viable thing to debate at all. The origin of the universe is, well, I do think young earth creationism is, is, has got some real issues. And I don't buy it. I, I think we, we could talk all day about the moon landing. There's tons of evidence on both sides. You have to figure out what's better evidence. Where there's really no evidence at all, and never has been, because there can't be evidence that is compelling in the case of a counterfactual, in, in the ca case of a logical antinomy, which is what Sola Scriptura is, a logical antinomy, like a circular square a planar figure that's all round and orthogonal at the same time. That's Sola Scriptura. Then we, we shouldn't even be dignifying this topic um, by, by, by going in too deep and, and citing scripture. Okay, so let's start with this video here. Is there one inerrant Bible? Can we play this? Okay, so we'll go slow. We'll be proceeding through this slow. I'll show you how to do it. Lots of people were really compelled by the video I released on Twitter. And um, I will go through it slowly. And we're going to be switching over from the mic to the computer mic. Let's, let's do it. Is there one inerrant Bible? This is the question you start with. Is there one inerrant Bible? The Christian must answer yes. Can't answer now. Pause there. Thank you. So, so, um, because this is a debate, sola scriptura, between Catholics and Protestants, we're, we're going to assume 
what is already held between all Catholics and all Protestants, which is, yes, there is one Bible, and it is inerrant. So we will have a dead end. It, uh, this is how, if you're new to flowcharts, how they, how they work. We'll have a dead end at any answers. There will be one answer in each case. These are all binary questions that simply cannot go forward. Okay, can I see that uh, vid, please? So, so the question is, is there one inerrant Bible? for You, you can't be a Christian and answer no. So we're... Uh, can we have that vid up? Yeah. So if someone were to say that there's an extra, there's this book, Huck Finn, in, in the Bible, an extra book, or that, the, let's take the Gospel of John. We're, we're, I'm kind of trying to steer away from canon disputes, even though that is bound up in this, between and among the Christian sects. Yeah, there's this one extra book, Huck, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. It's part of the Bible. Um, and, or, there's one less book, No Gospel of John given the fact that there is one inerrant Bible, then would that Bible still be inerrant? Right? We just agreed on the, on the flowchart that any Christian must hold there is one inerrant Bible. But would a Bible that has Huckleberry Finn, one extra book, or the Gospel of John, one less book, still be inerrant? Okay, let's go, let's go to the next phase of the flowchart, the next prongs. Yes, therefore, if someone claimed Huck Finn was a book of the Bible, or that John's Gospel wasn't, would either version still be the Bible? The Christian must answer no. Can't answer yes, that I have those versions. Huck Finn Bible. Okay, so the Christian must answer no, because the wrong books would make uh, what would... uh, put together be called the Bible or Scripture in an errant way or an equivalent way, because Huckleberry Finn did not actually happen. There was no boy that actually lived that was named Huckleberry Finn, nor does he concern himself with theology much, beyond some of the wayward Protestant teachings of Aunt Polly uh, and, and the widow Douglas. So you'd be calling that Bible with one too many or one too few books in it, inerrant Bible, inerrant scripture. And that would be different from the truly, actually inerrant scripture. It would be a different thing. A book with, with, with 20 chapters versus a book with 21 chapters cannot be called the same thing. So, um, we must ask then, we, we must be talking about the same thing univocally when we're talking about scripture. They're all Christians, okay? And this sounds like I'm going to really pin the canon selection process. You know, all, I think all Christians agree about 66 books of the Bible. We have like, you know, seven, seven or eight more than that. I'm not even, I'm not even trying to pin them to that. I, I'm not going to be a stickler on that, though it is tangentially quite importantly related if we all agree the Bible's inerrant, we have to be talking about one and the same thing. We can't, we can't call two different things the same thing. That's called equivocity, uh, calling two different things by the same name. But I'm not going to go off on canon selection, okay? 
What we're going to just say that will prove the point that follows from this is, is there an inerrant table of contents that was promulgated, uh, that was inspired along with the individual books of the Bible, the kind of meta-narrative of which books go along, okay? We can go. There isn't. John West Bible would be the Bible. You must answer no as a Christian. One too few or one too many inerrant books cannot univocally be called the Bible. It would equivocally be referring to the Bible would be something else. Therefore, does Scripture, as divinely revealed, contain an inerrant table of contents? The Christian answer must be no. Every Christian. The Christian. Christian answer is no. No, there, there, no Protestant holds yes, even though it would be convenient for them if there were an inerrant table of contents that were revealed to any one of the evangelists, saying, here, Matthew, here are all the other, what, 72 or 73 books of the Bible. Here, you, you, I, I inspired you, the book of Matthew, but this voice from heaven that was somehow promulgated at the time, here are the other books of the Bible, here's a table of contents, which is a part of the book of Matthew, but it's also the meta-narrative of Matthew plus all the other biblical books. As convenient as this would be for sola scriptura folks, no, there is no divinely inspired table of contents for the Bible. No Protestant holds it. The other Paul admits this is not the case, okay? So we're still operating on basically, aside from the, the canon selection question, which is an important tangent that I'm not even forcing. Um, we're agreeing so far with Protestants on this flowchart. The answer is no. Um, because there's not a table of contents that's inerrant, doesn't inerrancy of Scripture, which we still hold with the Protestants, require promulgation? We'll go there. The Bible does not have its own inerrant table of contents. It's not Christian belief. Since the answer is no, it doesn't. We say, doesn't then inerrancy require promulgation? The Christian answer is, yes, it does. To say that there's no promulgation of a Bible is not Christian belief, so we answer yes. Now, this is the first possible fork in the road where Christians might be slightly confused. What exactly is promulgation? Even a, a Catholic who said, Tim, I like this argument. But, um, yes, inerrancy requires promulgation to say, no, it's not Christian belief that, that biblical inerrancy does not require uh, uh, promulgation. It's just no Protestant, Catholic, or Orthodox believes this. But, the Catholic asked me, couldn't God be considered the promulgator? Well, you can run that theory, but plainly, no Christian out there, Protestant, Orthodox, or Catholic, has ever held this, because it would be an impossible thing to hold. right? God does not have a publishing company or a printing press or uh, this is not part of the story of Christianity. 
in what we call tradition or in scripture itself. No, God, the way that divine inspiration works is that various folks came forward and claimed that the stories they wrote about Jesus were divinely inspired. Now, four of these men, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were divinely inspired. But all that we know qua God, from God's perspective, is that these four men claimed that they were divinely inspired. But guess who else claimed to be divinely inspired? Someone who claimed to have written a gospel of Thomas. Someone who claimed to have written a gospel of, of James. I forget which other apocryphal gospels there are. No Christian communities ever took seriously Thomas or James, meaning there is something in capital T tradition which attests to the fact that, you know, you can pull the wheat from the chaff. But that's not part of the promulgation of God. God did no promulgation. God did Zitzim Laban, divine inspiration, and individual humans claimed that they were inspired by God. And some authority had simply had to ratify that claim. Yes, you were inspired. No, you weren't. John, inspired. Doubting Thomas's gospel, not. Matthew, you're inspired. Gospel of, gospel of James, that was not. That, that sorting process is what we mean by infallible promulgation. And so the next question is, can an inerrant promulgation be accomplished by a non-infallible promulgator? That's the question. Can we go back to that? Promulgation be accomplished by a non-infallible promulgator? The answer must be no. An inerrant promulgation cannot be accomplished by a non-infallible promulgator. You can't say, yes, an inerrant text can be promulgated, authoritatively published or edited by a fallible editor-publisher promulgator. This would be a violation of the first principle, the logical axiom called the principle of proportionate cause. In this case, it means no amount of finite evidence adduces so the the logical axioms, like the principle of non-contradiction, the principle of the excluded middle, the principle of causation itself, or in this case, the principle of proportionate causation, are principles that are so fundamental to human reasoning, even preling, almost prelinguistic, they're precepts of reasoning, that you can't prove them but by a, a principle called Aristotelian retorsion from the book of metaphysics. Um, Aristotle gives us this technique where we can show that by performative contradiction, any attempt to do without them, the principle of contradiction or excluded middle or proportionate causation, will, uh, will be false, will be doomed to failure. And not only failure, but if you attempt to deny the principle of non-contradiction, your denial will have buried in it an affirmation of the principle of non-contradiction right? If you say, I don't believe in this principle of non-contradiction, that means, uh, you know, A cannot be B, 
in the same time at the same way. I don't believe that. Well, you had to declare it. You had to make an assertion which makes use of the principle of non-contradiction. You're, you're assuming that what you say, my proposition, A, about the principle of non-contradiction, cannot mean its opposite at the same time. That's called a performed contradiction. Aristotle gives us this technique. Same thing with any of the other first principles. You cannot ever hold that about this particular logical axiom, the principle of proportionate causation, which is very simple. An effect cannot be greater than its cause. Or more simple than that, an effect can't be greater than its cause. A creation requires a creator. In, in the theistic con- context, of, of creation that we're talking about with Augustine, the guy that really made creation ex nihilo a big thing. Or in the case of scripture, you can't give what you don't have. Can I give you $10 if I don't have it? If your kid tells you he gave his sister, uh, take your pick, a Lamborghini. You're like, well, you didn't have one, so you couldn't have given it. It's a first principle. So, inerrancy of scripture cannot have been conferred inerrancy cannot have been conferred upon scripture by a fallible authority or by an errant authority the only way that the promulgator of which books are in the bible and the books we have double checked as the publishers that they are all written inerrantly, and edited in or out inerrantly. Which books make it in also has to be an inerrant decision. The promulgator must himself be infallible because you can't give what you don't have. So um, can the promulgator of whichever Bible has the correct canon, leave that to the side for a minute, uh, exercise fallibility while conferring inerrancy to scripture? No. He has to be infallible in order to confer inerrancy upon scripture. And if you hold the other way around, the way Protestants do, who believe in sola scriptura, then you have ran foul of, you have run foul, sorry, of the principle of proportionate causation. All right. QED. To get inerrant scripture, you must have infallible tradition. This is why the other Paul did not want to debate. I'm not saying anything new. This might be slung together in a way. This new. This is just a flowchart. Every single Christian believes in every single line here up until the last fork in the road. Here's a real simple example that proves that you can't give what you don't have. You can't confer inerrancy unless you are infallible. I've given it before. The other Paul made a video doing what he thought was critiquing this example because he didn't know that I had all the force behind it. I'm T. I witness a car crash and they ask me, can you stick around and pass off the evidence of what you witnessed, T? for Tim. Uh, it's also T for tradition. Um, to the cops. And I say, I got to run to work. I, can, I only have 10 minutes. So on the ninth minute, if the cops aren't there yet, I flag down another car. Call this other car S for scripture. And I say, I'm going to tell you, 
I'm going to tell you what I saw. And I tell S, I take off, I go to work. S is the one that passes off the narrative, the true narrative, the inherently true narrative of, of that car crash to the cops. So the cops end up receiving the inerrant idea of what happened. No flaws in it. S is scripture. You can't say, it's a first principle, that that narrative, which came from me, T, tradition, was inerrant unless I were infallible and infallibly gave it. It's that simple. Now, Protestants got twisted off, the other poll got twisted off on the fact that they're confusing a couple things. Will the divine inspiration and the actual act of penning the scripture, the individual writers penning the scripture, will that happen in real time? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Paul, they all wrote this stuff uh, before 100 AD, right? Yes, they, they all wrote this stuff in the first Christian century. But the act of binding it all together is itself a creative act. And in order to have what we call the Bible, that creative act must have been infallible as well, to say this book's in, this book's out. And the act of deciding, like you said, just a question, the act of deciding, okay, all these things were penned about 100 AD. This is real, this is fake, this is what makes the cut, this is what doesn't, is the clincher, right? That's the infallibility of tradition. Deciding. So, I mean, like, look, if if you go... So, the other Paul said he's getting confused because the books were written in real time. That's not promulgation. Um, If we went into Jelly Belly... Let's pretend that Jelly Belly didn't sell... I know they do. Bags of all sorted one colors. Let's say... you're going too far. You go go into Jelly Belly's uh, uh, local store and... You say, um, I want to get all black jelly beans, which are good people. Like, get hip to it. Black licorice is a good flavor. I, you're, you're psychos if you don't like it. I know people think I'm psycho. But <laughs> let's pretend that they had to be pre-sorted through, and they did not sell bags of only black licorice or any color. If I walk out of Jelly Belly, and I say, here, Steph, here's a bag of black jelly beans. I would throw it on Merry the Christmas. <laughs> yes, you'd throw it on. She would hate it. No, this is my, this is my wife. She's my lover. And <laughs> this is a, a gift of love that I would give to her. Yo, black jelly beans is the most delicious. It's, I would accept it. Sizzling cinnamon is the most delicious, but black, gel, black licorice is up there. If I ha- sorted her, handed her a pre sorted bag, and I said, black licorice is the truth. <laughs> like, like, uh, I think Shaq said about Paul Pierce, right? Black licorice is the truth. It's the inerrant truth. She'd be like, okay, I'll have to accept that. I'll have to get hip to that. But the question is, can I have passed off the truth to her, black licorice jelly beans, without sorting out infallibly, if she has only the truth, a bunch of black licorice, without sorting out all of the other colors infallibly? <laughs> well, I'm... T- I'm trying to land the plane here because this has gone so far. What did you say? <laughs> I said sorting out uh, the popcorn, which you think I'm a psychopath for liking. <laughs> Everyone thinks you're a psycho for liking, but that's the th- <laughs> So popcorn-flavored Jelly Belly, buttered popcorn, sorry, get the name right. Yeah. You don't even show respect to get the name right. Buttered popcorn is disgusting. It's false. It's like one of the false gospels, one of the apocryphal gospels. So I pulled out all the buttered popcorn, 
that act is the infallibility of the sorting authority, the promulgating authority. So it said, okay, black jelly bean, black licorice is the truth, but to make sure that it's the whole truth and only the truth, then that act of sorting itself, which is what promulgation is, by the authority of scripture and then eventually the magisterium in 368, 380, um, canon selection, though I tried not to get twisted off on that. That infallible act is required. If you're eating only truth, black licorice, then the act of sorting out all the other flavors has to have been an infallible act. So I think that's, that's two different ways to think about it. If the cops are going to get the true story, the inherently true story of what happened at that car crash, but they're good, they got it only from S, not from T, the original witness, then T had to have been infallible or else that's simply not the right story. If they got the right story, 100%, then it means that T had to be 100% infallible as well, you see? If black licorice is the truth, I know most of you agree with Steph, you don't think it's the truth, but assuming black licorice jelly beans are the truth and you're ingesting only the truth, well, yes, black licorice has to be the truth. That's the inerrancy of scripture. Proving that's more difficult, but all Christians accept that. What I'm proving is that my act of sorting out all the other colors of jelly belly had to have been an infallible act to get her only the black licorice jelly beans. Okay, so... You look like you wanted to say something, and I'm sure it's a dig at black licorice no, jelly beans. I, I just, I'm still hurt by the comments against buttered popcorn. That's disgusting. As are you. <laughs> I am wounded. As are you and all others who, who eat buttered popcorn. Quick. We still have about ten seconds left of that video. Did you want me to finish it? Yeah, let's let's go on to it. it it'll kind of land the plane, as they say. I cannot believe you said land the plane. Okay. No. QED. There must be infallible tradition for anyone who believes in inerrant scripture. Yeah, so I'm just putting putting the title on it. QED. This has been proven. If you accept inerrant scripture, you must accept infallible tradition. It gets more interesting when you're like, okay, for a Catholic tradition must be infallible. Really, for any Christian, tradition must be infallible. But um, the magisterium, not all of its acts are infallible. Well, that's interesting because in the first Christian millennium, the infallible tradition grew into the, the magisterium, and the magisterium can do things that are infallible. But that's, a mu that's much stickier. The point is, Protestants deny as if scripture fell out of the sky in a public act that everyone could witness at once, so promulgation was unnecessary, they deny that there was a necessary infallible authority needed for um, everyone to be certain by theory of knowledge that scripture is inerrant. That's just not, that's just impossible. So there you have it. A a anything else regarding Soul scriptura is a waste of time. Now, what most Protestants today do is they will thin out their conception of sola scriptura from the thick conception, which really means only scripture is, is the rule of faith, the rule by which a Catholic knows inerrant Christian, by which a Christian knows inerrant Christian truth. 
They'll, that's the really thick conception to say really only scripture. And they'll say, well, we'll allow first principles in, even though scripture doesn't articulate the principle of non-contradiction or excluded middle. Um, we'll allow the fact that there has to be historical motives of credibility for believing scripture is true. Okay, well, now you're using sort of secondary principles of induction and deduction and historicity. So we're already getting away from sola scriptura, right? First principles should be assumed. Second principles should be assumed, like there should be motives of credibility. But now they're even, they're thinning out sola scriptura so much that they're really bound to nothing. So the other thing that was going to happen in this debate with the other Paul that would have been probably disappointing for you, and in all honesty will probably be disappointing for you if I end up debating another Protestant, on the theory of knowledge of sola scriptura, is this. It's a sola scriptura taken in its thick iteration, its thick conception, is so obviously false that it, that everyone can see it almost immediately. Only the scripture is true for the rule of faith. Well, yeah, but there are constituent, incipient, uh, tacit notions that have to be there that we didn't get from scripture. That's the thick conception. So it's so thick in that iteration that it's obviously false. And you don't need a master debater to come in and show you. I did say master debater. (laughs) Um, In the thin conception, the way other Paul was watering it down, thinning it out so much, that it's not that it's necessarily false anymore. You could thin out sola scriptura so much that it's not even interesting. Or that we don't even disagree. I'm not saying he went that far. We still disagreed about it. But I'll show you what we disagreed about in a second. But you could thin it out and be like, sola scriptura means not only scripture. It means only scripture only is in the only other thing besides tradition that you need for the rule of faith. If you meant sola scriptura is the only other thing besides the rule of faith, then you'd be like, well, that's the Catholic view, uh, besides tradition, right? So if the rule of faith were comprised of Scripture and tradition both being errorless, then that would be a Catholic conception of sola scriptura. So these guys do a lot of gerrymandering and term-shaving modern Protestants in order to still cleave to their Roman papery, popery, church-hating, but they're basically giving you very watered-down, thin conceptions of what should be the thick, robust, chunky, meaty, Protestant conceptions. Like, all we need is the Bible. And you're like, but the Bible, if it's inherently true, it has to have been infallibly promulgated. And because of the principle of proportionate causation, it can't have been infallibly promulgated without an infallible promulgator. And then they're just like, I don't want to do this debate. <laughs> I have personal reasons. I have to back out. Now, here's what the other Paul also said. He had such, get ready for this, Steph, you might not even know this. He had such a thin conception of sola scriptura that it's almost like, it's almost as thin as the one I just outlined as Catholic-friendly, thin, thin, thin conception of sola scriptura. He said, were the apostles inerrant? He would say, yes. He actually did say yes, the apostles, the apostolic tradition, was in, in, infallible. Yeah, Peter as well. All of them. 
But, but because they all died, the apostolic tradition died. Hold on, let me get this. So this is another mini decision tree. Were the apostles inerrant? He said yes, but their inerrancy can be mutable. Then you decision tree. Inerrancy can't be mutable. Um, you're positing, the other Paul, an unchanging certain truth that can change into changing uncertain truth. That, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, this is a logical antinomy as well. The other Paul literally says, yes, there was at the time, at 100 AD or 90, 91 AD, there was an infallible apostolic tradition in addition to Scripture because you needed that to inform Scripture. He admits this. That's kind of the, that's kind of the, the, the jumping of the shark. You're like, why would you debate him then? Well, because he said when the last apostle John died, tradition died. And what he's positing is that inerrant truth. We're not talking about, by tradition, we don't mean the apostles' bodies, which wither and die, right? We're talking about the truth conveyed by the apostles in tradition, which is ontologically, and I'd say chronologically, prior to the editing of Scripture. So all of a sudden you have to say that Inerrant truth, inerrant means it doesn't change, can be changeable, can end. And that's what he says. 100 AD or 90 AD, there is an infallible tradition. 2023, there's not an infallible tradition. That just doesn't make any sense. Obviously, inerrant means perennial. QED, the apostolic tradition, is as inerrant as it ever was. It doesn't matter that the apostles' bodies withered and died. We're not talking about their bodies. We're talking about the truths they conveyed by way of Scripture. Okay. So, are there any questions? If there are any questions, we'll take Super Chats. Yeah. Um, when did the church infallib infallibly promulgate the collection of books? I don't know if it did. Oh, that's, I mean, there's, so you have three, you have the canon selection process at the end of the fourth century right, 368 to 380. At Trent, it anathematizes uh, a lot of the, the, I mean, Trent's way later. Um, at Trent, it I, I anathematizes some of the, the Protestant nonsense about the canon. Um, but there was no need, right? There was no need before this wacky, stupid, absolutely stupid, Protestant conception of sola scriptura because no Catholic ever thought to say that you can have inerrant scripture without infallible tradition. Nope, no Orthodox ever thought to challenge the idea of inerrant scripture needing infallible tradition. You have to understand how stupid this idea is. So you had the, the mini finalizing of canon selection in like th between 368 and 380 AD. But then you had the holy cow, what a moron sort of anathematization at the Council of Trent 1,100 years later, 1,200 years later. Um, just because the, the church, the, these guys, Cash, Cash and the other guy, Cajetan and all the other guys were like, holy cow, 
I can't believe there's someone stupid enough to think that you can have an inerrant work product or text without having an infallible editing process. So that they literally, that's, if you read the language at the Council of Trent, they're literally like, holy cow, are you seriously this dumb? That's, that's what it's like. Go, Jay, Jay go read those sections. And he said that I think other Paul read from a debate from him too. Ah, oh, interesting. What's up, Jay? Jay Dyer, everybody. Uh, I did not, I didn't know that he ran from a debate and Jay from you too. Seventh Council affirms the, yeah, I, I knew you would, you, you know those first, uh, First seven or eight, very well. Affirms the canon from what? From what? I can't see that. T-U-R, or T-R-U-L-L-L. Yeah, see, I mean, Jay's really strong on the history. Look, I'm just going through the a prioris, but there's all sorts of... Remember, remember, the first four councils of the church, the, the, the Catholic Church recognized, are basically all Trinitarian, and so they start opening it up to wider issues around the time that Constantine gave the church some stability, allowed the church from, to move from underground above. The first four councils was after the Edict of Milan, but of course they were dealing with like a backlog of really, really basic Trinitarian issues that had arisen in those three centuries where they couldn't come up for air, the Christians, because they're holding masses in the catacombs and, and they couldn't, really flag each other from around the Mediterranean and say, hey, what are you doing in your liturgy? Hey, what are you doing? Um, you know, what, what, what kind of creed are you saying? They had to tend to all this stuff only once Constantine made Christianity legal at, with the Edict of Milan. So they deal with the backlog in the first four councils, then five, six, seven, eight, they start dealing with things that are a little bit less obvious than we're Christians. We have a triune God. Triune God requires X, Y, Z. Uh, I didn't know that other Paul had run from this debate. But I mean, look, so he he kind of impugned my honor by saying I'd impugned his honor. Uh, let me let me let me read you what he said. This is this is absolute gaslighting. This is how it went. Trent said, and I, I'm not sure why Trent felt the need to come in. He, he, he's just being polite here. Just to clarify, the other Paul had to postpone this debate because of personal issues. He never indicated that he did not want to debate the epistemology of Sola Scriptura. He was uncomfortable with it the whole time, doing theory of knowledge of Sola. However, because this was the second time Post had postponed, I decided to invite another opponent. Um, he was responding to me, and I said... Uh, yesterday on Twitter, in an email dated August 17th to both of us, Trent, Paul said he backed out because he needed more special epistemological study on his part, which is something that's fair to say before you've penciled in a debate. And this, is the, this, is the, this was the rescheduled debate, right? So this is the second attempt. The second one. After we had the, the first one was we were trying to lock down like a date in July. And it was like, this weekend might work. But then, so it wasn't such a, an egregious postponement. He said, hold on, guys, something just came up. Let's do August, I'll be fine. I was like, that's a month, bro. But that's fine. I mean, this is a straightforward issue. Um, this is a straightforward issue. Anyone, any Christian who, who talks online should be ready to debate this at any time. Um, I, if Jay's still in debate, it's like, hey, I, I've studied 
Palamism, by way of Trinitarian uh, metaphysics, at a few different times in, in doctoral studies, since I've been in this is from a philosophy point of view. But give me a couple months and let's let's debate this. Hopefully, uh, he and I can debate it in person in October. That would be dope. But that's when you sort it out is when you're like, hold on, let me look. I do want to study this. This is not as fundamental to what I know. You don't do it after you set a date. The other Paul then jumped in and said, I couldn't do such study because of personal reasons. Work. Like two days before the debate. It it took him like two days before the debate to come to that realization. Right. Well, after he'd locked it in. And he said, um, what did he say? He literally then produced the August 17th email where he admitted, I can't do this because I don't know enough about epistemology. It's not a... And I said, but you'd already accepted the date and time for debate twice, I believe. The first time less strictly. And I said, P-P-P-P-S, because <laughs> I had to tweet a lot last night when this came out. I said, I'll literally do this debate right now, Trent and Paul. I'll, I'll get out of the pool and come upstairs and do it right now. I was in my side yard. And he said, I'm not going to debate with half-baked or basic prep. I want the audience to come out the other end smarter. Well, they will if they hear what I offered. I said, fair enough, my brother in Christ, but this is a back out for reasons of ill prep, not personal reasons as if you got the flu, flu, diarrhea, loved one in ICU, hurricane blowing through your den. Your personal den? Your personal den. Uh, Personal diarrhea, personal vomiting. Personal friend or family in the ICU, personal hurricane destruction, right? That, so those are the only ones that really count. So, I mean, I'd said something kind of, I said something with the Riz a couple times earlier last night. I was, being, I was getting Rizzy when I was like, look, I wouldn't want to debate against this topic either. It's devastating and brutalist. And there's apodictic certitude to what I'm saying. So I'm not trying to be too full of the riz. Uh, I, I just it's hard not to get that way when Paul was saying you you impugned you impugned my honor. I'm like, well, you're impugning my honor by making it sound like, and I don't really care about all this honor talk. Well, We're not a bunch of pirates, but the disrespect of your time too, because we carved out time. You've done some basic prep for this. To back out at the last minute and say, hey, I didn't even put in enough um, effort to show up to this debate prepared is so disrespectful to Trent who sent this up, you who have been preparing for this, and the audience who have been waiting for this. Yeah, I mean, look, I know Trent likes Rocky. Rocky one's in contention for one of my favorite movies of all time. Why does Rocky get the shot against Apollo Creed? Because of broken third metacarpal on the right hand. Right? right, um, Apollo's previous opponent. So when you have an opponent lined up, it's kind of like making a fight. And, and it is, uh, I, I'm really hoping this Anthony Joshua, Deontay Wilder fight gets made for January. Once you've made the fight, that's different from being dodgy in the talks, right? It's really lame that Tyson Fury dodged Usyk. We want a, we want a unified champion. We want an undisputed champion. Unify them belts. But the fact that they came close to agreeing to terms and didn't, well, yeah, that's not, that's not the same thing as giving someone your word. You haven't given a man your word yet. But once you gave a man your word, yeah, let's do this, and you set a date, uh, just saying personal reasons in a better era, 
is is not acceptable. It's disrespectful of the time and the preparation that I I done. I, I created this flow chart. I'm not saying it was particularly hard to do. I look. I approach all debates by making by making uh, symbolic logic and flow charts. Make sure what I'm saying is propositionally valid. You're like I created this wrinkled document <laughs> just for your pleasure. Some kid was like, "Well, everything you said is true, but it looks like it was made by a kindergartner." If that's the case, that's fine, man. But um. Good luck finding a, a kindergartner that can use the principle of Aristotelian retorsion to vouchsafe the principle of proportionate causation. Now, I mean, I, I'm not. I'm look. I'm not trying to sound cocky or whatever. It, it's a. It, this is a relatively easy topic to debate. There are harder ones, like like the metaphysics of the Trinity. So, um, this one is easy though, and and you can use. Sentio logic, sentio, sentencio logic to show just using categorical logic. You know, you can't give what you, you don't have. If there are any other questions, I'd take them. Um, ask the kid is asking a question. I'm trying to figure it. He's saying that there's a problem with, um, let me see if I can find um, his original question because I think it was a... <sighs> Of course not. No, no. I, I I don't know what you're referring to, so you'd have to. I I mean, like, look, I'm not a I'm not a scripture scholar. I never claimed to be a scripture scholar, but unless you're, um, here here's what I'm willing to say. If the proposition you just proposed is problematic, it would be problematic for the inerrancy of scripture. It would not be problematic for the infallibility of tradition. See what I'm saying? If if you say, well, this busts the system, it would bust the scripture itself. And, and, and maybe with it, the infallibility of the tradition which gave us those contradictions. And I, I don't know what you're referring to, but what I can say that's tight as a system is um, if the scripture we're looking at is inerrant. Whatever, 73 books. I think all Christians believe uh, 66 books are in there. Forget canon selection. Let's just, to, to make my point most starkly, let's look at the 66 books of scripture that everyone agrees. We're, those are equivocal names for the Bible. If you believe there's only 66 books in there and we believe there are 73. We shouldn't even be saying, I have the Bible, you have the Bible. They're not the same thing. This is a, we need to do an ooziology, the substance of the Bible, but be that as it may. Whatever's inerrant in Scripture cannot be inerrant by virtue of the fact of divine inspiration. We can't know epistemologically that it's divinely inspired, nor would the Lord expect us to know as a verification matter that it's divinely inspired qua by virtue of the divine inspiration alone. That's a fact. You can't give what you don't have. Since the Bible is written for the Christian faithful, since it was inspired, zitz im leven, for the Christian faithful, 
um, there has to be a promulgator of this text. The promulgator also has to be the promulgator of the seven sacraments. Promulgator has to also be the promulgator of Christian doctrine that's unchanging. Yeah, irreformable doctrines, I mean, not reformable ones. So um, it's, it's just, it's as simple as, can there be a creation without a creator? No. Can an effect be greater than a cause? No. Can you use motives of credibility? This is what, what the other Paul basically says. Can you use motives of credibility? It's like building a case from finite evidence to give us an infinite certitude. What, what Immanuel Kant calls apodictic certitude, categorical certitude. No. The case that a prosecutor builds in the courtroom is finite e- e- evidentiality. Finite evidentiality does not ever give 100% certitude. The way you have 100% certitude is through infallible authority alone. And the infallible authority can't be called the, you know, the act of God inspiring you know, a- a X number of different men to take pen to paper. Because anybody can claim to take pen to paper. It's the church's verification. This is an inspired text. This is not. That gives us what, what's called the Bible, the act of publishing. Red jelly bean out, black jelly bean in. That act itself is different from the act of the inspiration. Yes, there might have been 73 books of the Bible that were, in fact, divinely inspired, but they'd all be, to put them, to, to glue them all together, must be an infallible act. That again, this is not a problem before Martin Luther. This is not a problem that ever got mentioned at, you know, the Great Schism. This is just ridiculous. It's like, was there a problem with seven sacraments? No. Do the bishops have this binding loosing authority? No. Do the bishops have the kind of lineal, lineal title of the apostles? No. You only get into this issue, really, with not believing in infallible tradition by claiming that the bishops don't have the lineal authority passed on to them of the apostles. When, when you get guys, Protestants like the other Paul saying, well, yeah, the, the apostles, they had an infallible tradition, but that wasn't handed on. One, it was handed on by virtue of any intellectual tradition, right? Chain of evidence. But two, it's actually handed on supernaturally and ontologically, but, but you know, the, the powers of um, bishops and priests. There's another question, just a basic one. Um, Tim, love your stuff. Question, how should Catholics approach bad takes, heresy, cringe, spoken by coworkers? Do we challenge them or let it be, etc.? I mean, it's a prudential judgment, obviously. You know, I, I tend to never want to just brook uh, what I think is a, a wrong conception of a topic from, from the floor to the rafters. But that, you know, sometimes I think that's my problem. I don't know. It's a deeply prudential question, how much to speak or how much to hold one's tongue. I, I, I do think that, not to go too much like boomer con on everyone, but, you know, evil only prevails by uh, allowing uh, bad men to speak and bad men to act. 
So habituating silence, while it's good for the monastic way of life, doesn't seem to be good for lay men. And I do mean men. It's it just to let the loud mouth purple hairs at the water cooler be the only one saying really radical, new, antinomial, anti-Western civilizational things is, is really bad. I don't know what topic we're talking about. But if you're talking about the way that the church began to regard around Vatican II our elder brothers in the faith, as some people, some popes have taken to calling Old Testament people, yeah, that, that's gonna, you, you might want to hold, consider holding your tongue around the church. There are some topics that are much, much, much more hot than others. Um, if you're talking about politics, D versus R, you know, senatorial skullduggery, then, you know, you, technically your work can't fire you because you stick up for Republicans over Democrats if a couple Democrats are firing you. You have more Overton window approved cultural uh, grounds to say, hey, I, you're talking about politics, I'm going to jump in. So just know what you're getting into before you open your mouth. But I, I think there's, it's always a good idea. I think it's always a good idea to, to speak truth. Anyway, let me know what you guys think about, <laughs> I'm interested in what you guys think about um, uh, the way Trent Horn uh, has, has done a good job trying to corral people into this. He said he was going to mention in today's video what happened. So I'm not sure if he did that. Tell me what you think about a video I know he did because I watched part of it was his, uh, his uh, Taylor Marshall and Kennedy Hall video on moon landings and, and young earth creationism and all that. Let me know what you think. God bless you all. Thank you for tuning in. Hopefully this helped you to dialogue up your Protestant countrymen, brothers and sisters in Christ. God bless you all. Deus Volt. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit.